Welcome to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast, brought to you by Asphalus Advisors and the Disaster Recovery Journal. Crisis management in today's world is ever-changing, and this podcast is our commitment to help you navigate successful outcomes for any crisis you may face. I'm your host, Vanessa Matthews. I specialize in providing insights and solutions for crisis, continuity, and resilience across industries from real estate and healthcare to terrorism in the airline and transportation worlds. No matter what industry you're in, this podcast will provide you the tools to build resilience in your organization. Welcome back to another episode for the Business Resilience Decoded podcast. Today, I'm super excited. Our podcast title is What We Can Learn from the Silicon Bank Failure in Leadership and Risk Management. Our special guest today is Chris Holmes. He is the CEO and co-founder of Riskversity. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the um, invitation. Happy to be here. I'm super excited. It's our first time interviewing somebody from the Risk Diversity team. We met a few years back, and so I'm very excited for this topic and to have you on. To give a little bit of background on what we're going to talk about today before we dive into our content, with over 15 years of experience in risk management, Chris not only leads risk diversity, but he also sits on several business and advisory boards. So we're super excited to dive into today's content. So let's start by talking, Chris, what happened with the Silicon Bank failure and what ramifications have been made to those organizations that were a part of that? Let, let me start by saying that this is, it's a very complicated, well, not complicated, it's a complex set of circumstances. Um, and folks who want to get a lot more details um, can review the um, Federal Deposit Insurance Commission's report on this entire event, um, which goes into um, a lot of specifics. But in general, what happened with um, SBB is as a result of, so, so banks have um, liquidity requirements, right? A part of those liquidity requirements um, say that they have a have to have a certain amount of cash on hand in order to be able to give out to depositors if there's a demand made on the cash that they've had. But for the rest of those funds that don't fall underneath those liquidity requirements, um, they can um, invest those funds into certain assets. One of those asset classes um, that SVB um, decided to invest in was uh, treasuries, uh, treasury bonds, uh, which is a nice, safe. Um, investment for most um, most of the time. However, whenever you have volatile events like interest rates going from 1% to 5% to now almost 7% um, over the span of just a few months, um, it makes those uh, the value of those bonds um, uh, fluctuate. So that in tandem with folks making um, withdrawals from the bank, which increased the bank's liquidity requirements, meaning that they had to liquidate some of the assets they had invested inside of those bonds in short order, caused the bank to, to essentially experience a cycle of uh, liquidity need, selling assets, liquidity need, and then selling assets to the point where uh, the bank um, was, was actually um, uh, failed and went into receivership with, um, with the, federal, uh, uh, the Federal Reserve. And this, of course, in, in my opinion, starts with leadership and risk, right? Because somebody mm-hmm. probably wasn't paying attention to something. But can you talk a little bit about how you've seen this ripple effect within the risk versity portfolio? Sure. So the major banking needs of, of our company, for example, are, are done with um, what are called systemically important banks uh, or SIBs. These are the two big to fail banks. Um, however, um, what we've seen from some of our clients who are investing more with uh, regional banks 
they're, they're having some challenges still uh, today because of this particular event. So whenever SVB failed, um, folks who were banking with SVB and other organizations took a look around and said, hey, if this could happen to regional bank X like SVB or uh, some of the other banks that had a similar challenge, it probably could happen to mine as well. So there was a flight, if you will, to safety, meaning that cash kind of flew out of those local regional banks um, and are now going into these uh, systemically important banks. So for, for our clients, uh, what we're starting to see is that that same flight, uh, if you will, to safety as a part of their risk management strategy um, is to take those funds from uh, those regional banks who have that liquidity challenge to some of these systemically important banks. One of the things that the Federal Reserve has done in order to kind of cull that or to uh, soothe um, investors or depositors' concerns is to increase the insurance limit that they have um, on funds. So traditionally, the FDIC would insure funds for deposits up to $250,000. That um, number has now been lifted for uh, regional banks, so they essentially don't have this challenge, but the risk still exists inside of the minds of the individuals who are depositors at those banks. Yeah, so here's what concerns me about that. Like, there's mm -hmm. a ripple effect that if mm -hmm. this trend continues and it impacts local and regional banks, that's my first concern. But the second concern that I have is from my experience, and you tell me, cause I could be you know, totally wrong here. Typically it's the big banks that are not in compliance that we're always bailing out. So why would anybody pull out funding or dollars from a regional bank or a credit union, even mm -hmm. if, if the insurance is not as high as a larger bank, they typically are the ones that actually follow the rules. So, so I would I would agree with you um, in most cases, at least from the perception point of what we have. So, um, in 0809, you know, a lot of us uh, saw larger banks and organizations begin to fail and be bailed out by the federal government, right? So that precedent, right or wrong, is what folks are looking at today. So, whenever you look at a bank like um, a J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo or someone of that caliber, we, right or wrong, understand that those banks are quote too big to fail. So if there was a challenge, it would pose a systemic risk, and we know that the federal government, the Federal Reserve, would step in and essentially rescue those banks. That safety net doesn't necessarily exist for some of the local regional banks, which may be in compliance or may not be in compliance. So because of that fear or that concern, we know, once again, right or wrong, that those larger banks are going to get the bailout um, and not necessarily the regional banks, um, then uh, folks are, are making that, that flight to safety. So that's, that's some of the, the ripple effect is that we're moving from the regional banks who are the ones who lend to smaller businesses, they are the ones who lend to uh, folks who are doing um, uh, real estate transactions, typically uh, commercial real estate transactions specifically. I want to say 60 or 70 percent of the real estate um, holdings in the U.S. are done by these small regional banks. So as money leaves um, these institutions, there's fewer resources for um, our local communities to uh, continue to invest inside of their real estate infrastructure, their small businesses, et cetera. So those are some of the ripple effects. And But I don't know if I'm exactly getting to the, to the answer to, to your question. Oh, that was phenomenal, Chris. Yes. <laughs> okay. So what I appreciate about us having a risk management background is there's there's two things that I really love, and that's root cause and then what's the consequences, right? And so when we talk about risks and understanding kind of that landscape that you just laid out for us, what are we now more susceptible to due to the Silicon Valley bank failure as individuals and as mm -hmm. business owners or leaders? And then how do we prepare for those risks? Sure, sure. So I, I think what, one of the things and I alluded to it a moment, a moment ago that, that we're going to be 
very challenged with is inside the commercial real estate market. So when I say commercial real estate, I don't want you to think about, you know, huge um, office buildings, even those, even though those do apply. I want you to think about 40 to 50 unit apartment complexes that may be inside of your um, neighborhood. Some of the strip malls that may be inside of um, a local community, things of that scale are impacted inside of commercial real estate as well. As we uh, continue to have these funding challenges, a number of those um, loans, typically um, your mortgage, for example, is on a 30-year fixed rate. That's not how commercial real estate typically works. Typically, they're on a five or a 10-year arm. So uh, what that means is that, that those folks are coming up for renewal on uh, their, their loans with inside of that, that window when uh, we have interest rates that have gone up, in some cases, five-fold. So the local strip mall owner or apartment complex owner, um, and even some of the, the larger commercial properties um, are going to be uh, facing sometimes 1.5 to double um, what their mortgage payments were uh, coming up, let's say, in, in June to, to July. Now, rents have only gone up about 33% over the last you know, five or six years. So if we look at something like you know, rents going up 33%, but your mortgage payments going um, from one and a half times to double, um, it's going to be a serious problem for um, the real estate market if this trend um, continues uh, with interest rates rising and the liquidity not necessarily being there. So that's, that's from a, a business standpoint for some of the folks that we're looking at and having that conversation with. And individually, uh, what we're looking at or what the Federal Reserve has done so far is to stop that systemic flow of cash out of these smaller banks into larger banks, which in theory should stop some of these failures from happening. But if they don't, if these fears are not called, then we could have a systemic banking failure like we did um, we'll go on the cusp of instead of 0809. I have so many more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, you just took me to school. Okay, uh -huh. so... On the personal and business side, last question, because I really want to talk more about risk uh, adversity. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what are the leading indicators that we can start to pay attention to so that we can know it when we see it and start to be aware? What, what the Federal Reserve has done now um, is they put out some reports on bank balances, um, essentially. So I want to say it's, it's quarterly. It might even be monthly for these, uh, these numbers. And so two numbers to, to pay attention uh, to just as, as very simple, like you would do inside of your, your household income would be, you know, what are my, my current assets and what are my liabilities? Um, if you start to see the asset lines of these banks continue to decline um, and those liabilities continue to increase while the investments are being downgraded um, and reduced as well, that's a leading indicator that there could be a challenge with that specific institution. For us, for me, for you, the average person that doesn't have, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm assuming, I'm making a gross assumption, um, the average person that doesn't have more than $250,000 inside of a, um, a single bank account, it's a non-issue. Uh, but for some of the businesses that we run, like Asphalus and Risversity, where those assets can get up on a monthly basis, up, up and above that number before payroll hits, um, so to speak, um, then we may want to look at doing something different with but the cash that we have on hand, either moving those funds like a lot of folks have already done uh, to the larger institutions, or if it's an easier solution, it can be cumbersome spreading those funds out so that you're below that 250 uh, mark inside of multiple um, institutions. Uh, makes, makes sense. Okay, so switching gears to leadership and the founding of Riskversity, can cool. you tell us a little bit about your background in entrepreneurship and risk, risk management, and also specifically to what led you to start a company? 
um, unlike a, a lot of folks inside of the industry, uh, many, many people kind of stumble into the industry. Um, I, I, I did to a degree. So my background's in actuarial mathematics. I minored in risk management and insurance inside of um, college. But the way that I got here was because I was very good at computer programming, but I, I hated it. And that's nothing against programmers. Um, it's just that for me, it was not the thing that was, you know, uh, getting me out of bed um, every night. So I went to my um, advisors, talked to some of my mentors and said, hey, how can I use what I currently have, which was a bunch of math credits and not fall behind in my graduation schedule and still, you know, uh, do something that I might enjoy. So they recommended that I keep those math credits and, and uh, major in actuarial mathematics. I had no idea um, what that was, <laughs> what was at the time. Um, but as we got closer to internships and graduation, I found out what an actuary was and decided that's not for me either. Um, so I did an internship with an organization called Arthur J. Gallagher, uh, which is a risk management insurance brokerage, transitioned over to Wells Fargo Insurance Services, doing the same thing, selling commercial property and casualty insurance. And it was at that point, um, Vanessa, that I started looking around at people who were 20 and 30 years my senior, and they were doing the same thing that I was doing. And I asked an important question to myself, is this what I want to be doing for the next 20 or 30 years? For anybody who's starting a business or is currently going through you know, their, their time inside of corporate America, I would ad advise that they ask that same question. Is this something that I want to do for the next 20 or 30 years? And the answer for me was a resounding no. So I went to my management team, um, had a conversation, and they were kind enough um, actually to, to offer me some um, time uh, to think about it. Um, paid, uh, I, I took that opportunity um, to think about it, and at the end of that time frame, um, I actually left uh, the organization. So what motivated me behind the scenes during that time was um, myself and four other business, uh, my, my four business partners inside of my first um, entrepreneurship venture was, which was legacy investment funds. You know, we just, we were talking amongst ourselves about, you know, black wealth and opportunities for growth um, inside of the um, um, investment space. Uh, so we pooled our money together uh, so that we could buy and sell real estate and that organization still exists um, now. So that was sort of the genesis uh, if you will, for that that initial journey. I feel like there was a part B to that question, uh, Vanessa, and I'm sorry that I lost it. No, it's all good. Um, I think you answered it in terms of what led you to start, especially with mm -hmm. the management focus, but you've had legacy investments was already a part of your entrepreneurial journey before you got into risk diversity. So Correct. to add on to that question, mm -hmm. to get more insight, um, as the CEO and co-founder of Risk Versity, mm -hmm. What do you think are the most important leadership skills for managing a company and its Yes, team? yes, ma'am. So, so let me um, um, conclude that, that story just to include the risk-versity piece in there real quick, and I'll, I'll answer that second question, uh, which is that you know, one of my, my partners said, hey, you got this great background of risk management and insurance. We should be using that. So Lawrence, who you've met before, um, talked me into getting off of the sidelines, so to speak, and using um, that portion of my um, uh, my background. So in 2015, we started Legacy. Excuse me, we, we started Risversity um, at that time and transitioned it into what it is now, which is a um, consulting firm, enterprise risk management consulting. So uh, to, to answer the, the second part of that that question, thank you for giving me the, the leeway to back up. What what I think is is very important for leading inside of a company or an organization is is empathetic listening. Empathetic listening. So, you know, today, is, as you know, um, employees have a number of options um, in which they can be employed or work for. 
Um, so if we're not as leaders listening to the needs of the folks who are inside of our organization and saying, hey, what what can we do to make sure that you feel like um, this is a place that you can grow, thrive, and develop in? And some folks know and understand what that that is, but other folks need some coaching or some pulling, uh, if you will, in order to get that that to come out of them. And I think that that empathetic listening is a is a good skill to to learn and develop as a leader, um, in order to pull those things out so that folks feel um, safe and engaged um, at a, at a workplace. Yeah. Last two questions for you. I've, I've had the pleasure of, of having a partnership with Risversity and CyberSure. And so as you kind of think about where you are now and what's next, can you talk us through what is next from a business perspective? A couple of, of exciting things are happening for us now, um, Vanessa. One, uh, we've had a, a lot of success um, internationally over the last, I'd say, six to nine months. Uh, we um, had an excellent um, new hire when we brought um, Paul Marchina um, onto the team um, about um, 18 months ago, and he has just been done, doing a great job um, at getting us into um, some of our international clients um, now. So, so we're excited about um, some of the growth that's happening inside of that area, specifically um, because uh, in the Dutch Caribbean, for example, um, there's some laws that are being passed that are forcing organizations like banks like SVB and other financial institutions uh, to look at their um, enterprise risk management program. Um, so it's a natural fit for us uh, to kind of uh, dovetail with those new requirements and, and fit into that, that, that seam in order to, to solve a, a challenge that, that currently exists inside of that marketplace. So, so that, that's one piece. I think the second piece is we're part of several uh, minority um, uh, business accelerators. Um, and, and one of those is out of Cincinnati, um, Ohio. And now um, Lawrence and myself are inside of a program that's in partnership with Rutgers University that's really helping us um, take our business to the next level. So it's doing an, an excellent um, job of um, helping us uh, work on the business and not necessarily in the business all the time. And I think if I could go back in time, um, that would be something that uh, we would have done much earlier um, inside of our business to develop a plan to work on the business and not uh, not always um, in the business on the day to day. Yeah, man. And you have to have capacity to be on and not in. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Certainly. I love it. Well, short shout out to Kevin Dick for making the introduction to Asphalus Advisors and Risversity. Um, when we think about the space of risk management, cybersecurity, emergency management, crisis management, insurance, um, you typically don't see folks who look like myself and Chris. And so it, it has been very important for us to be intentional about where we partner and how we partner. And I've definitely appreciated the thought leadership and the partnership uh, from you and Lawrence. Lawrence is a hoot for those of you who have not ha had the chance. Um. But last question for you, where can people find you and connect with you after this episode? Sure. So um, we're on the traditional um, uh, platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we are growing as an organization to, um, to reach out and be more on uh, platforms like Instagram and some others. Uh, but we recently did, uh, Vanessa, um, a, a series, a video series on everyday risk management. Um, and our, our aim is just to translate risk management and practices um, and, and, and principles into something that people can use on an everyday basis. So if they were to go on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter um, and find uh, riskversity, uh, they could be able to engage with some of that content. The most fun uh, was whenever we did uh, stunt car um, driving um, experience at the BMW School of Driving um, and, and parlay that into uh, risk management practices. It's really neat and folks should check it out. Well, that is funny because every decision is literally a risk decision. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you for tuning into the podcast and you all have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast brought to you by Espalis Advisors and Disaster Recovery Journal. Make sure you check out the show notes for this episode to see all the upcoming events, programs, and ways we can support you. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, leave us a review, and share it with a friend. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.